You are listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Geraldine Brooks. Brooks joined All Things Considered host Julia Futakawa at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to discuss her latest novel, Horse, a story of the legendary racehorse Lexington, the enslaved groom who became his companion, a painting traced through history, and America's unfinished reckoning with racism. This conversation was recorded live on June 21st, 2023. Hello and good evening. Welcome to Writers on the New England Stage. I'm Julia and here with me tonight is Geraldine Brooks. <laughs> and I was telling Geraldine it's so exciting to be here because normally I just talk into one of these in front of an audience of no one. <laughs> and now there's so many lovely people here to, to join in. So. We're excited to get down to it, and let's go. Yes. (laughs) So, Geraldine, I'm curious. I'm a journalist, and you are a journalist as well. You started as one. What made you pivot to fiction writing? I have the Nigerian secret police to thank for that. (laughs) (laughs) Do do tell you more. All I ever wanted to be was a newspaper reporter from the time I was eight years old. Um, And I can date it specifically because my dad worked as a proofreader on the local paper in my hometown, Sydney, Australia. And the first time I ever went to see where dad went to work every day, uh, it was in the afternoon and it was in the days when they still printed the papers in the building where the reporters and the editors all worked. And he took me down to the press floor and it was a sensory overload for an eight-year-old girl. The air was misty with ink and the clatter of the linotype machines and the size of these unbelievable rolls of newsprint. And when the presses started to roll, the whole building shook. And I'm standing there and I watch the newsprint fly across the room and the papers land on the conveyor belt. And I reached out and grabbed one. And it was warm. (laughs) It was hot off the press. (laughs) And I remember looking down at that inky black headline and thinking, I'm the first one who knows what's going on in my city right now 
And I wanted to be a part of that. And luckily, I was for a decade and a half. And I loved my work. It wasn't always easy work. It was very grueling and emotionally draining because I wound up as a foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal covering conflicts in all kinds of places. And I had gone to Nigeria because an activist from the Agoni people of the Niger Delta region had come to New York to tell this story about how they had been, essentially had their land despoiled for 35 years by shell oil, extracting billions of dollars of wealth and yet giving nothing back to the community who were desperately poor subsistence farmers and their wells had been contaminated and oil spills had gone, not cleaned up. And they'd finally organized a nonviolent protest about this. And the allegation was that Shell had called on the brutal military dictatorship of Sunny Abacha to suppress that movement and that they, the army had come and massacred these peaceful protesters. And honestly, from the, from the perch of covering companies for the Wall Street Journal in New York, it seemed implausible that a Western oil company would behave like that in the 1990s. But, you know, the journal was a very good paper in those days, so they said, go check it out, and I went, and it was worse. It was even worse than had been described. The evidence was overwhelming that this had happened and the brutality, so I had taken all the notes and I had all the, all the evidence of what had happened. And I then, as you do, as a journalist, I went to the Nigerian military to get their side of the story. <laughs> and that didn't work out very well, so. <laughs> Um, I was lying on the concrete floor of the lockup in Port Harcourt, being interrogated by the secret police who accused me of being a French spy, which I thought was sort of flattering. <laughs> I thought, you should hear my Australian schoolgirl French. <laughs> but. Um, in, in the long nights between the interrogation sessions, I worried about how long they would keep me there because it occurred to me for the first night, first time that I'd allowed myself to reach the ripe age of 39 years old and had neglected to have a kid and that I actually did want to have a kid and that if they kept me for a very long time, that door might close. So when they deported me after three days, I went home and greeted my husband, Tony, with a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> and when our first son was born the following year, I realized I needed a new job because I didn't want to go off to places where you might get thrown in the slammer. So. Yeah, I started writing fiction. <laughs> so I guess it works. It's a out. long story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well.
Well, we're, we're here tonight to, to meet you and to talk about your new novel, Horse, and it's a book that required an immense amount of research to put together. Do you think that your journalistic training informed that process at all in collecting all of that information? Absolutely. I mean, it informs everything for me from my just general nosiness, you know. <laughs> As a journalist, you had this absolute license to get up in everybody's business. You know, you wanted to find something out, you could call somebody up and ask, what is it exactly you do? Can I come and watch? And amazingly, people are very open to that, generally speaking, unless they're part of the international conspiracy of bad guys. <laughs> um, but I love doing the research. Uh, and... I also think that all those years, particularly the foreign correspondent years, covering conflicts and parachuting into people's lives at the worst possible moments and um, seeing how people behave in times of crisis, I'm still using a lot of what I learned about human nature in my fiction. And this book brings us, the reader, through three distinct time periods from the 1850s all the way up into the present day, but there's a through line throughout the whole story, which is a legendary and very real racehorse named Lexington. You actually found out about Lexington 13 years ago or so now. Mm -hmm. so, so what about him stuck with you this whole time? What, sorry? what about Lexington oh, stuck with you? No, this well, whole time? You, the, the, the predicate, I guess, to that was the fact that I became obsessed with horses in my middle age, which I don't think is the best time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're going to become horse crazy, better you should be five <laughs> or 15, but not 50, which I was. but. I went, I went off to a um, writer's retreat in Santa Fe, and it was on a beautiful old ranch. And there were all these wonderful horses right outside my room, and I was admiring them because I've always loved animals. And these were Appaloosas and Western Paints and just gorgeous. So I was looking at them, and the wrangler said, you should come for a ride. And I said, I can't ride. And he said, yes, you can. <laughs> And so I went with him and... Um, Scary at all? Hmm? Scary at all? No. Those horses really knew their job. And we had this incredible ride through the pink arroyos of New Mexico. And it was just a transcendent experience. And a few days later, when I was back home, I had a young friend came over for dinner, and I told her how much I had loved it. And she looked out the window... And she said, you've got some land. You could have a horse. In fact, I could give you my horse. <laughs> a free horse. <laughs> this horse was not close by. Um, I live on Martha's Vineyard. This horse was in Mexico. <laughs> but it didn't matter. I didn't care that it was going to be incredibly expensive and complicated to get a hold of my free horse because <laughs> she was beautiful. And I knew that because she had been in a commercial 
for a fast-acting cream to treat vaginal yeast infections. <laughs> Palomino gallops across the Mexican Altiplano voiceover. Some things should be fast. <laughs> so I got this horse and it was all I wanted to think about. I was at riding lessons or I was getting the horse ready for the farrier or I was meeting with the saddle fitter or the horse master or the horse intuitive and it was a lot of money going out the door and I wasn't getting any actual writing done. So there was not a lot of income coming in and right at the moment when the red ink was about to overwhelm the family balance sheet, I met this guy from the Smithsonian who had just delivered the skeleton of the greatest racehorse of the 19th century from a dusty attic in the Natural History Museum in Washington to pride of place at an exhibition on the history of the thoroughbred in Kentucky at the International Museum of the Horse, back where this horse had come from in Lexington, Kentucky. And he's telling about the history of this horse's racing career, which was brilliant. And the even more extraordinary stud career of this horse. This horse is in the bloodline of every horse you have ever heard of in America, every racehorse. And then he got up to what happened to the horse in the Civil War. And I knew I had my next novel, and I also had a way to pay for my horse obsession. <laughs> <laughs> so is the horse fast? Is Lexington fast? Oh, no, no, oh that's Mantequilla was very fast. In fact, too fast for me. She, there's, there's a term of art in the horse world for what happened with us, which was, um, I was over-mounted. <laughs> this was not a beginner's horse, which I found out after I'd learned a tremendous amount about hocks and stifles. I also learned about the bone in the pelvis called the superior remus after she tossed me and <laughs> no, it, it was fine, but I needed to find a better, a better sitch for her. So she ended up on Cape Cod with a young 19-year-old barrel racer and the two of them won the Connecticut championship. So, and then... I lucked into a very sweet, older Welsh pony named Valentine. And we're perfect together. <laughs> so, Geraldine, what intrigues you about these stories that, for some people, may be forgotten ones? Like, uh, from lost paintings to the legacy of Lexington, which many people might not have known about, what, what brings you to those narratives? I love stories from the past where you can know something really fascinating but you can't know everything. Because if you can know too much, then it becomes a job for a narrative historian, if you can find out everything. So I quickly realized as I started to, at first I thought that this was gonna be a story for my husband, Tony Horwitz, who writes narrative history and loves that 
um, period of um, mid-19th century American history. And I thought he, he might want it. But the minute we started to look into it, we realized that there was the story of the horse, which is incredibly well documented because racing was such an obsession in this country in the 19th century. It was the national pastime, the first sport that Americans as a group cared about. It was bigger than NFL. It was NFL if everybody in this theater had a helmet and pads at home in their closet and played football on the weekend because it was an agrarian society and everyone had a horse or they were only one generation away from having a horse. So they cared about these thoroughbred races in a way that's hard for us to imagine now. So every hoofbeat that this horse took is well documented in the news reports of the day. You can find out everything and you can write a narrative history of the horse. When the horse died, his obituary ran over six broadsheet pages of the newspaper. He was a celebrity. He was bigger than Taylor Swift. <laughs> but the people, the enslaved black horsemen who were responsible for this horse's greatness, they're hard to find. Their lives are not noted in this exquisite detail. And that's where it became not a story for Tony Horwitz to write a narrative history, but for me to do my best to take the shards that you can find and build a novel. You do write from the perspective of two black men in horse. There's obviously a lot of conversation around who should and shouldn't be telling different kinds of stories. How did you think about that as you were researching and writing this book? And did you anticipate confronting that question? I thought about it with a great deal of dread. I, when I realized what the real story of Lexington was, I thought, if you do this, you may be walking into a threshing machine. You may provoke a Twitter storm. It may be the last book you ever write. And the coward in me said, I shouldn't write this book. And then a voice said, but it's a really good story. And you could write it from the point of view of the white thoroughbred owners, the white men who owned this horse, three of them all fascinating characters, rich material. And then I thought that would be absolutely unconscionable because what you would be doing would be erasing the contribution of the black horseman again. And I thought if I'm gonna write this book, I'm just gonna have to do the work, but I want to surface the story of the expertise of these men, the incredible talent that they had, um, the brilliance, really. And to know that this industry that was so important to so many Americans and from which these white thoroughbred owners and enslavers drew so much of their wealth and prestige, and I felt like 
I needed to try and tell that story. And I am absolutely aware of the discourse and sympathetic to it. I think it was a conversation that we were late to have about the lack of diversity of voices in publishing. I mean, it, it was 10 years ago, probably the widest industry. You would walk into the editorial floor of any major publishing house and you would not see a person of color. Luckily, this, this argument, this conversation has started to change that and the doors have opened and we are the richer for it. We're getting a much wider range of literature from diverse, diverse voices published and we're starting to see, although there's a lot of work to do, more people of color as the actual gatekeepers who are assigning editors now than there were 10 years ago, and this is all incredibly important. On the other hand, I think it would be a very barren literature if you were never allowed to imagine an experience outside of your own genetic history. I don't want to write about Irish migrants to Australia in the 1860s. <laughs> I know those people. They were bigoted. <laughs> And they were, they were unbelievable um, sexists. And, you know, I just don't want to spend a lot of time with them. Sorry. <laughs> um, and, and I really feel like the act of empathy in trying to, no matter, it, might, it must be an imperfect exercise to imagine yourself into another set of experiences that are not your own, I still think it's worth doing and I think it's necessary for all of us to try and put ourselves in other shoes, other uncomfortable shoes. And particularly now when we're experiencing this war on the real history of this country. Um, I I guess what I'm saying is I think it's worth making the effort and I don't think the effort itself should be despised. Was there anyone who helped to guide you through that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to write this book without... You know, I always rely on early readers, but in this book they were indispensable. And in that, I'm very lucky that I've lived on Martha's Vineyard for almost 20 years now and it has an unbelievable, uh, thriving black community and has had for 100 years. And so I was lucky to, that my friends in that community were patient and kind and willing to share their lived experience because it's a, it's a pretty privileged community, mostly. And one thing I've learned through those friendships is that no amount of privilege or wealth or even celebrity keeps you safe if your skin's the wrong color in this country. And I bet everybody in the theater remembers um, one of the examples. Um, every black friend of mine has an experience. And um, Henry Louis Gates is my summer neighbor on Martha's Vineyard. And you might remember a few years ago, Harvard professor, television star, hauled off his own porch in handcuffs and thrown in the back of a squad car because 
some racist saw a black man trying to open the front door of a nice house. Happened to be his house. Five minutes it took the cop to decide to arrest him. One of the characters in your story, Jarrett, who is the enslaved groom of Lexington, um, his story is wide-ranging. It's often very difficult. Uh, but at more than one point, he's challenged by people in positions of power who are saying, telling him to measure his better circumstances against his worse circumstances, and he refuses to do it because he's never free. Can you talk about why you included these moments, these challenges, and how they also fit with the contemporary narrative? So, Jarrett... I, I decided that the central character in the, in the um, historical spine of the book, the 19th century story of the horse, knowing horses now uh, as well as I do, I know that the person that counts to the horse is not the owner, it's not the trainer, it's not the jockey, it's the groom, because the groom is the one who's there every morning with the grain and the hay, it's the groom who bathes the legs and bandages them, it's the groom who brushes and spends the time, it's the groom whose footstep the horse recognizes when that person comes into the barn. And so I knew it was going to be Lexington's groom who would be the central character. And I knew who the groom was because there's a painting of Lexington, unfortunately lost, but it is of Lexington being led out by Black Jarrett, his groom. So I had the name, and I could find traces of him in the farm records and in letters between white owners about the transport of the horse in the care of Jarrett. But what he was like, what his life was like, I had to kind of infer that and piece it together from what I could find out about the lives of of people like that. Um, and it, it's an extra... So what the, what the black horseman did was so important to these white men, the thoroughbred owners, that they had a different status to other enslaved people. They had certain things that they could do that other enslaved people absolutely could not do, which was like travel across state lines, um, accrue property in their own right, which often led to them being able to accrue enough money to buy their own emancipation. But it didn't mean that they weren't still enmeshed in a completely brutal and dehumanizing system where they could be torn away from their family and their community at a moment's notice and sent to work for somebody else with no say in it. So I wanted to show both sides of it. I wanted to show the complexity of the situation where these are enslaved people who are respected and valued in a way that other enslaved people are not but also who are vulnerable in the same way as other enslaved people. There's a moment in the book when we're in our present day narrative when um, a research acquaintance of Jess's who is looking into Lexington compares class standings in England to the black experience in America. 
and Theo is understandably upset by this, Jess remains silent, even though she is his partner. What does her reaction reveal about white complicity in America when it comes to racism? So I guess we should explain for anyone who hasn't read it. So I knew that there was going to be a contemporary story running alongside the historical one because I was fascinated by the story of the skeleton at the Smithsonian. And I wanted to explore what the science around bones is and what it does and what it tells you. But I also knew that I couldn't leave the story of race in the 19th century part of the book as if in our contemporary life it's something that's over and done with that we don't have to worry about anymore because that's clearly not true. So I knew there'd have to be a resonance, an echo between the two sections and that's where the character of Theo comes into the story and he is a young black PhD candidate who is, um, has a Nigerian mother and a, a black American father and has been raised as a State Department brat. His parents are both diplomats, so he's been raised out of the United States, but he comes back for his university years. And when we meet him, he's at Georgetown doing a PhD on depictions of Africans in Western art. And he becomes intrigued with the depictions of the black horsemen in antebellum equestrian paintings. And he and Jess come together over their shared interest in Lexington and the black horsemen, in his case, that um, were responsible for the horse. So they have a kind of a fraught um, romance because... Just like me and like many of us, blunders and commits microaggressions. And he has, he's used to this. He's learned how to put up with it. But I think um, it's just about how we hear things differently and how we see things differently. And I was drawing on my own ignorance when I came to this country as a graduate student. And I was intensely curious about black experience. And, you know, I made a lot of black friends really quickly because I was so, so um, uninhibited, not having grown up here with all the constraints and, and things that um, I guess people internalize when, when you have lived in this country your whole life. But honestly, I was just appalling and ignorant and blundering in those friendships. And it's amazing that people were as patient with me as they were. So I guess I'm just, I'm just drawing on my own experience in Jess's awkwardness in certain situations. Yeah, that was one of the follow-ups I wanted to ask you, is that do you see parts of yourself in Jess? Is that how she came to be a part of this book? So. I had so many characters that I had to research so deeply and be so careful about constructing their backstory and their inner life and making sure I got it right. And I thought, I'm just going to have one character that I don't have to work very hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, she's basically got my background completely. And 
I was that nerdy girl. Um, I didn't bring a rat home from the dump, <laughs> but I did bring home like awful toxic sludge to look at under my microscope. And my mother was horrified and was like, ah, get that out of here. You don't know what it is. You probably get cancer and die. And I'm like, mom, I'll never get the Nobel Prize for chemistry if you throw out my specimens. <laughs> and I was right. I never will get the Nobel Prize for chemistry. <laughs> I'd like to throw in a question from the audience. Um, among our storylines, we have that of Thomas J. Scott, who is the artist who paints a portrait of Lexington. Many portraits, actually. He, he, uh, I, th there are at least three that we know about, yeah. Uh, his is the only section of the book that's written in the first person. Why is that? Yeah, because he wrote a lot, and I had access to his voice in a way that I didn't to the other characters in the book. And I love to write in first person because it's, it's got a kind of directness. And in my earlier novels, I generally have a first person narrator, the person who tells the story. And I couldn't use him in that role in this book because he just wasn't always there because Lexington moves to, through three different... Um, geographical locations and it wouldn't have been plausible for him to have eyes on all of it. But I did want to use the fact that I could, I could hear his voice through his own writing and also because he was a painter but he had trained um, partly in medicine and then in um, pharmacy. And so when the Civil War happened, he became a volunteer in a Kentucky unit that fought on the Union side and he was their medic. And he was written about extensively um, by the chaplain of that unit. So I could really see this guy, and I feel that I knew how he sounded. So I wanted to have the opportunity to change it up and have a first-person voice. Mm -hmm. And Scott was among the painters of that time, the equestrian painters, probably one of the lesser-known yeah. ones. Um, there's some commentary about the art world throughout this book. Who makes it, what's, what it's worth to different people, and who's recognized for it, who isn't? What inspired that thread for you? So I was a fine art major, <laughs> and I haven't had a lot of call to use that, but I've always been fascinated by art history. And when I found out that equestrian portraiture was such a big part of this obsession with the racehorses of, of the 19th century, um, I, I was thrilled by that. But when I went to the Smithsonian to research osteoprep and find out what the people who study the bones uh, at the Smithsonian actually do, um, I was there exploring that aspect of the story when a, a curator from the art museum said, you know, we've got in our collection a, a portrait of the horse. Um, whose skeleton you're interested in, and would you like to see it? And it's not on display, it's in the study center, but I can show it to you. So I said, sure, and we went. And um, beautiful, traditional oil portrait of the horse by Thomas J. Scott. And I said, did it come to the Smithsonian with, with the gift of the skeleton in, in the 19th century? And she said, no, no, it's much later. She said, in fact, this is really weird. It came in a bequest from the estate of Martha Jackson. And Martha Jackson was a, an avant-garde 
gallerist in New York in the immediate post-World War II period when our whole aesthetic was being remade by abstract expressionism and op art and all those movements. She was at the forefront. She was an early champion of Pollock and de Kooning and Bridget Riley. And every other piece that was in the bequest was an edgy piece of modern art of that period, except for this one traditional oil portrait of a horse. And I became obsessed with why did Martha Jackson, this champion of the avant-garde, have this one traditional portrait? So I knew that there was a third strand for the book. <laughs> Well, now that you bring up Martha Jackson, she is involved in the, the middle era of this book, along with mentions of people like Jackson Pollock, um, people who existed who um, folks living today may have known, may have met. Uh, what level of responsibility did you feel when writing about relatively contemporary characters? Mm -hmm. And how did you try to remain true to who they were while also effectively bringing them into the plot of this book. So Martha Jackson um, did a long oral history, which is in um, this, the Smithsonian's collection. So I was able to get her own account of her, of her life in post-World War II New York from the time she arrives thinking she wants to be a painter to the time she trades her sports car to Jackson Pollock for two of his paintings. And so almost everything about her is based on that oral, that I've written in the novel, is based on the oral history. The only thing that I've made up because I couldn't track it down is why she had that painting. <laughs> And I'm afraid, you know, her son died just before I was able to ask him if he had any insight into it. I, I just missed that opportunity. But I did find out that both she and her mother were avid equestrians and that her mother died in a freak equestrian accident, having been a powerhouse competitive jumper uh, who competed um, at the highest levels fell off a horse in a trivial accident and was killed. And so I used what I knew from the true story to spin a little fictional, uh, theoretical. A large part of this book takes place during the Civil War era. Uh, your novel March takes place during that same era. Is there something about this time in American history that you feel drawn to? No. <laughs> but I had, to, I had to find a way to be drawn to it because I married a Civil War nut. <laughs> um, some of you may have read work by my husband, Tony Horwitz, and a lot of it centers on the Civil War, which was a passion of his and uh, a fascination from the time he was a child. But I met him in journalism school uh, and we got married pretty soon after that and very soon after that became foreign correspondents and we spent a decade covering more contemporary conflicts and I didn't realize just how deep this went with him until um, we'd been in various countries including my own home place in Australia 
for years, and he said, you know, I want to spend some time back close to my parents, and we settled in a beautiful little town in Virginia. And there's a saying, the Civil War was fought in 10,000 places. We moved to Virginia, and it soon became depressingly clear to me that we were going to go to every one of them. And I became kind of churlish about this after a while, like Antietam again, Gettysburg on the 4th of July. You want to go and see the burial of Stonewall Jackson's horse? Bit late. But yes, we did. I could have been at a Bruce Springsteen concert in Washington, D.C. that weekend, but no. We had to go to VMI where they'd finally decided to inter the stuffed remains of Little Sorrel. <laughs> and I realized that I would have to find a way to connect with this interest of his. <laughs> and I did find it because the village that we'd moved to had a very interesting history. It had been settled by Quakers in 1733. And they were ardent abolitionists and it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. And then when the Civil War broke out, uh, some of the young men of the village decided that, uh, you know, as Quakers, they're anti-violence, but they decided that slavery was a worse evil than violence, and some of them signed up to fight on the Union side. And I thought about what happens to young people who go to war for an ideal and they go driven by a great moral purpose, but the nature of war being what it is, they're going to have to do immoral things in the course of that. So I became intrigued with the experience of the common soldier, the idealist at war. And then it occurred to me that there was the perfect vehicle to explore this, which is the absent father in Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. And we, we hear on the first page that he's gone off at an advanced age to minister to the Union troops because of his abolitionist convictions. But we don't hear anything about what happens to him until he comes home and um, goes around the room and tells the girls how they've changed, how he sees that they've changed in a year at war, in the year he's been away. But what that year has done to change him, nothing is said. So I thought, he is my found object, and I can explore the notion of an idealist at war through Mr. March, and so that's, that's my book, March. Mm -hmm. And your husband, Tony, now that you mentioned him, you say that he had this little jab he might direct at you sometimes on days when you procrastinated a bit, um, saying, doesn't look like horses galloping to the finish line today. <laughs> Yeah, he was, he, was, uh, look, he, was, he was instrumental in this book. He believed in it when my faith was wavering and when I thought, oh, God, you know, this is, this is too much to take on, white woman writing black lives in this particular climate, and, um, you know, I, it might be the last book I ever write and I might have to wind up, you know, farming macadamia nuts in northern Queensland or something. <laughs> And he just said, no, get on with it. It's a great story. You should do it. And he helped me a lot with archival materials. And he was the one who found Thomas Scott um, for me, which was a real turning point in the book. 
And um, uh, yeah, and then I was halfway through the book and he had finished his book, which was set in a similar period, um, but actually true. <laughs> it's, it's following the journey of Frederick Law Olmsted, who before he became the landscape architect of Central Park, was a reporter for the New York Times. And he was sent south before the Civil War to ask the question, why is our country so divided? And so Tony decided to retrace that journey that Olmsted had taken and ask the same question today. And he'd finished that book and was on book tour for it when he died suddenly of a heart attack. And I couldn't write for a year after that. I was just, you know, as you can imagine. But, you know, I finally crawled back to work um, because I wanted to finish the book so I could dedicate it to him. <laughs> I'd like to make sure I bring in another question from the audience. Has the racial inequity in the horse racing industry improved since, uh, since the time that this book ends? So what happened with um, race in racing is that it got worse uh, after the Civil War. In the reaction to Reconstruction, the black horsemen were forced out. Uh, for the jockeys, it became actually life-threatening to race because the white jockeys would conspire against them and put their lives at risk. So black jockeys left the industry. They either went abroad to pursue their career or they died in absolute penury. Um, the trainers were demoted and it was years, years before um, any black horsemen were back in any kind of um, senior position in the racing industry. So it's only in recent years that this has started to change. But still, if you go to the back stretch, most of the low paid, really long hours, real hard work positions are people of color, uh, black or Mexican, immigrant labor, and there's a tremendous amount of inequity still. Um, so there are the exceptional, brilliant stories of successful trainers and jockeys again, but the overall picture is still pretty bleak. One more from the audience would be, was Secretariat part of Lexington's lineage? Yep, Secretariat has Lexington bloodlines. Any others? That yeah, all of, them, all of all them, all of them. Man of War. <laughs> you name a racehorse you've heard of, Lexington is there. But it was most apparent in the immediate um, antebellum period. Lexington sired the most winners for 16 straight years. And it would have been more winners, except many of the horses uh, went off to be cavalry mounts during the Civil War, including one of Lexington's sons, who was uh, General Grant's horse. Um, and uh, the, the first winner of the Kentucky, the first Kentucky Derby was a son of Lexington. So his, his effect on the thoroughbred bloodlines in this country, you can't overstate it. 
And another being, your books are so diverse. I mean, I'm sure as an avid researcher of yours, there's many things that get your attention, but how do you end up choosing the thing that's gonna be your next focus? Oh, it's, I, I can't tell you exactly how, but these ideas, there's, there's a lot of them. <laughs> I feel like the air traffic controller at LaGuardia. <laughs> the ideas are just going around up there and you just have to figure out which one you're going to bring in to land. <laughs> All right, and you brought up your horse, Valentine, earlier. And in my research, I found something that I found very interesting, is that Valentine has a companion. Would you be willing you to share? Have, you can't have one horse, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing about that free horse. I immediately had to get another horse. <laughs> but um, luckily, my neighbor has a horse. So we keep our two horses together. And my neighbor's horse is an off-the-track racehorse. And his name is Screaming Hot Wings. <laughs> and Screaming Hot Wings just had his 34th birthday. So you look at that beautiful horse, his gorgeous chestnut with a lot of opinions and a true thoroughbred. And you think of all the horses that don't make it on the track who get thrown away at five years old. And you look at Screamer's long life, and when we, we have his birthday party every year, and every year we think this might be the last one, but it never is, thank goodness. And all the little girls that learn to ride on Screamer come to that birthday party, but now they're young women in their late 20s with little girls of their own who are learning to ride on Screamer. And so you just realize what these horses have to give and the life that they're entitled to. And I think we need to do a lot better with equine welfare. And Valentine is 27, yeah? She's 27, yeah. She's no spring chicken, but neither am I. <laughs> So another from the audience is, um, is how did Lexington come to the Smithsonian? We oh my gosh, it's such a great story. So at the end of this horse's life, and he lived a good long life, not as long as Screaming Hot Wings, but pretty good. Um, he is so famous that people come to the farm to pay homage to him. General Custer comes and talks about how he's the finest horse he's ever seen and all this kind of stuff. So there's tremendous interest in him uh, right until the end of his life because he is siring so many champions. And he dies peacefully and is buried in a, in a coffin, which is pretty unusual for a horse, and it's a pretty big coffin, as you can imagine. So he's buried in a coffin overlooking the mare's barn which I thought was really cute. But a few years later, they decide that they're gonna give him to the Smithsonian because people are really interested in him, so they dig him up and they send him to New York to be articulated. And then the articulated skeleton is sent to the Smithsonian where it is given pride of place and people come to see Lexington specifically. But 
years pass, and in the next century, people have forgotten about Lexington. And the Smithsonian's changed. It's not a cabinet of curiosities anymore. It's a scientific research ex, um, institution. And so they're not interested in having quirky exhibits. They want to show mammal skeletons. So Lexington is now displayed in the Hall of Mammals as an example of Equus cabalus, <laughs> horse, next to rat, kangaroo, elk. And then, you know, they don't, then they go all interactive and he's moved up into the attic and forgotten about until the Museum of the Horse says, hello, that horse is responsible for Kentucky being the center of thoroughbred breeding in this country. We'd like to have that skeleton. Do you think we could have it? And that's how he is now in a beautiful room all to himself with a great big blow up of one of Troy's portraits of him behind the skeleton. So he rides again. <laughs> Well, Geraldine Brooks, thank you so much for sitting down with me and for joining us this evening for Writers on the New England Stage. Thank you, Julia, and thank you, everybody. Can't wait to meet you all. Happy to sign books. And a few thank yous before we part ways. A thank you to the Music Hall Executive Director, Tina Sautel, New Hampshire Public Radio President and CEO, Jim Schachter, New Hampshire Public Radio Producer, Sarah Plord, the Music Hall Production Manager, Aidan Kellerman, the Music Hall Live Sound and Recording Engineer, Ian Martin, Musical Director and Band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought, and Music Hall Literary Producer, Brittany Wasson. And Julia. <laughs>